Welcome to this week. Next week from Group M, I'm Brian Weezer. And I'm Kate Scott Dawkins. And we got a lot of stuff uh, today. Um, you know, it's we're just ahead of the uh, busy, busy uh, earnings season. Uh, are you looking forward to uh, to that coming up? Am I looking forward to uh, no sleep again? Sure. No sleep till our data is ready. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, obviously we, we, we're always analyzing stuff. We're always digging into data around here. Um, and, and it's nice, though, when we get some thematic things to focus on, like when, you know, companies we care about and follow closely uh, have investor days. Uh, um, have you, are you learning to love the investor day format when you've um, been diving into them? It's good. You know, you have to um, watch everything or, or listen to everything with a bit of a, a critical ear because, you know, obviously their goal is to um, convince investors why they are the most epic and, uh, you know, most competitive company in the world, the best suited to, you know, changing environments over the next few years. So, yeah. So there are a couple this week that were relevant to our world. Uh, one, Sinclair, you know, large uh, US based broadcaster and, you know, lots of great, uh, uh, vantage points, if you will, on, on that business. But the one that we, we want to focus on um, is the Trade Desk. The Trade Desk uh, is a really important company on a lot of levels. Uh, you know, they're not as big as Google, they're not as big as Apple, they're not as big as a lot of companies, but because they touch on so many different parts of the business and where the change is, I think um, they come up a lot in our conversations, no? Yeah, they do, they do certainly, and I think, um... You know, they've done well in what they've set out to do. They have a clear vision around um, the role that programmatic especially is going to play. So, uh, you know, no, that's off. It's worth, it's worth providing some context of my own and just, uh, you know, my history, if you will. Now, uh, I'll, I'll start by saying that, to be clear, you know, the Trade Desk is a super important partner to uh, certainly to Group M and in uh, and, and most agencies. And, and I think they're really well regarded at that level. Uh, a lot of uh, how I look at the business um, does tie, however, to how I've looked at the, the stock um, because I was an analyst who covered it and maybe I was wrong on whether or not the, the valuation would come down to earth. Uh, um, but there's certainly a belief among those who are you know, bullish on the, the, the stock that it, it can grow into its valuation, which is uh, uh, maybe a different way to look at it. Um, but go back in time, um, certainly been paying attention to them for about 10 years, I think. And it has been impressive how they've just taken a lot of share. So with that, um, what I thought would be fun to do is to come back to uh, something we, 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 a new crazy business idea we talked about years ago, uh, or not years ago, at the beginning of this year. Uh, Kate, what does was that? Feel, it feels like years ago, right? does, doesn't it? Uh, in analyst years, it was years ago. What was that crazy business idea that we had? I think there's a commercial idea in it. Uh, Twitch for uh, Twitch for financial analysts. Yeah, I totally think you could do this. Twitch for analysts. So imagine you've got like a split screen, right? Where uh, you've got uh, a, a company either reporting earnings or doing an analyst day, and you've got snarky comments uh, from the peanut gallery. That's us, um, you know, saying, "Oh, but they didn't think about this," or "Do they really believe this?" No way. <laughs> I think there's a there there still in this. A market of like 15 people that would actually pay for this. <laughs> it'd be, but it'd be 15 really fun people to talk to. That's oh, okay. All right. So while we aren't actually going to create the, the parallel live, you know, concurrent feed, not least because it was three and a half hours long. And that's longer than our podcast normally, right? 
a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, so not least because it's, you know, we're not going to critique the whole thing, but I thought there'd be a lot of, there were a lot of things that were said, which are worth uh, either critiquing or discussing, or even just bringing up because frankly, there are some really interesting points that were brought up um, that I think, uh, again, touch to a wide range of issues impacting the industry. Yep. So the first thing stood out to me um, when they, was when they said shopper marketing uh when you had loyalty programs and sponsor listings and all those things you get to a roughly 500 billion dollar tam total addressable market kate what do you think 500 billion dollars uh i'd say that's at the way upper bounds of what um we are looking at as a potential uh i mean potential potential tam if like all the scale uh in the world gets sorted out and all the sophistication of these retailers um as media owners are are answered i think is like the upper the upper bounds but um uh and it you know depends on how they're defining it as well yeah. but and that's the, the, my my thinking is that it, it it is so many of the elements that go into what we'll call shopper marketing are fundamentally fuzzy um you know, because different companies account for these things in different ways. Is it real money? Is it not real money? Is it, you know, a, um, is it money that's, uh, uh, for example, coupons, which could be a, is that part of shopper marketing? And is that actually just a, you know, a discount from a, a revenue, but you're calling, it gets called revenue, right? Well, and there's, revenue. yeah, I think the, at this broadest category, we would probably call the entire field like commerce, media, but then not all is even media. Shopper marketing is a term that gets thrown around. Co-op is a term that gets thrown around. So yeah. there's yeah, a lot of different definitions that I think are are floating around. To be fair, this is this is not a critique or criticism of what you know of the trade does necessarily, but it, it's it's a broader critique of any time a TAM is brought up, uh especially in investor presentation context. The problem is I've observed and I've observed as an analyst that you could actually argue the real TAM might be multiples of the numbers cited, but it might seem too implausible because now you could argue that marketing broadly is call it 5% of all global company turnover. Let's call it $6 trillion. But if you, and if you said that really that's the TAM, people would say $6 trillion, that sounds like a made up number. We need something more manageable. So you come down to a smaller one. Um, so it's it's really uh one one always needs to caveat anytime you hear a tam brought up did you did you see they cited our data though for the current current market size did well you this that? We, this we do like they they did cite the only correct data on the size of retail media of 100 billion dollars go kate <laughs> yeah it was nice to uh nice to see that pop up in the presentation for sure yeah um okay another quote um we said that data driven is better than guessing that's fairly obvious there's a lot of guessing that goes on in advertising even today it wasn't just in the don draper era it continues today and that's essentially what we're replacing with what we do all right is data always perfect kate uh not in my not in my experience is more data always better brian no and that's kind of the thing like i I get the the religion, if you will, that some people have that it's possible for data to be perfect. But I observe that you know you can maybe make a better choice with different data, which may include more data. But it's not always a given that more data necessarily is better than guesswork, because sometimes data creates a false precision that a guess that's informed by you know subjective views on the world can actually be superior. 
I think there's also um, elements of, uh, you know, Group M's responsible investment framework across both, you know, um, data minimization, like, do you really need all that data just because you can collect it? Should you? Is it actually providing value? Uh, and then the sustainability piece, too, when we look at um, the amount of data calls or, or data elements attached to every single impression and what that adds to the, the carbon calculation for advertising as a total as well. Yeah. And again, the way I, I tend to think of it is that there needs to be more investment in the human parts of data, meaning analyzing, uh, having a, a, an innate understanding of a business, an opportunity, a, a feel, if you will, and then applying that to how you pick and prioritize data. Because as we know, if you torture data long enough, it'll tell you anything you want it to. I just had a great image of like uh, uh, minion style mini Brian's running around all <laughs> and zeros and ones being yeah. like on a rack with their yeah. little goggles. You know, that'd be great. Oh my gosh! If only we could. It's, there was a video version of this with animation. <laughs> totally. totally. <laughs> I'll have to release uh, it separately. All right. Um, programmatic will eventually power the whole trillion dollar TAM of advertising. Now there is one TAM that we actually are believe is perfect. It's our data on advertising revenues from meteorites. It is perfect. There is no need to challenge it ever. And we do get to a trillion dollars eventually. Um, okay, but let's just take the TAM as a given here. Okay, will programmatic power everything? No, well, I mean, it's, I, yeah, no. What about we, paper billboards? We, and we go back to my, uh, you know, my crazy business idea of, in the way back of, uh, you know, the water, remember that one where, you oh, know, yeah. the, yeah, nappier and water hydration system where, you know, or you could turn on the faucet, you know, just because something's old and the process is ancient doesn't mean it's not more efficient. Unfortunately, there are many instances where the application of programmatic concepts just adds cost. So I, it won't be everything. Um, all right. Buy side will always be in the power position. This was a statement. Now, obviously, the trade desk, to their credit, has been very focused on what they are, what they stand for, who they are. The, they've always been a buy-side-centric DSP. He, Jeff Green, CEO, argues they will always be in the power position um, because implicitly, he's, he's said, actually directly, uh, that supply can be practically unlimited. Um, you agree? We're always in the power position? uh not not quite that black and white no i don't think so um i think you know even as much as we've spoken about the the shifts happening in the, the video landscape and professional video landscape you know there are still elements of supply um that are unique and valuable right and that's kind of the point that as long as there are is inventory which subjectively is preferable to some other media and as long as there's subjectivity has a role which we'd argue it always will rightly or wrongly then that creates scarcity um so yeah that's uh i i don't think that's always true but but i will argue that it's possible for the buy side to be in a power position it comes back to some of these procurement centric ideas that we've written about in the past uh the idea of always having a batna best alternative to negotiate agreement um or the idea that everything could be decoupled into its unique attributes and if you you can create indifference to the things that you're not indifferent about marketers actually do have the ability 
to put themselves in that power position, but they must find ways to create alter credible alternatives to negotiate agreement. So, yeah. Um, next one. Uh, those that decide uh, what to buy and sell are the ones that make the money. So, is it always the case that deciders make money? Uh, well, I think that's what certainly what's pushing their philosophy as to what they're investing in. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I'd only raise the point that, you know, you make the most money in a given value chain if there's, you know, scarcity of your function. So in any given, you could have the lowest value adding component of a value chain. But if you have a monopoly for one reason or another, you're probably better positioned than in a, per, in a perfectly competitive environment. And now you could argue a DSP is in a, in a pretty good position because a marketer doesn't want to change DSP mid campaign. So, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I fully agree with the, the decision making, uh, decision makers ultimately are the ones uh, who, who make the money, but you know, that can be true in some cases. No, it points to, I mean, they're putting a lot of effort into making, trying to make UID 2.0 the um, standardized post cookie alternative too, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. again, that places them in a stickier position. Yep. Um, all right, next comment, and this is this is a really important one. Um, so Jeff Green said, so rumor has it that the government is going to file suit against Google any minute now, and that Google has really struck or stuck between privacy and antitrust. And honestly, they keep, in my view, keep oscillating between which one they're trying to respond to and which one is the bigger threat. And what I think this has done is it's made very hard to get things done inside of Google. All right, this is something coincidentally, I was writing back to one of our colleagues who asked us question on a related issue, I'm basically saying the same thing. This is one of the reasons why one can anticipate that, you know, Google may find it, it's in its own interest to separate it, some of that tech businesses, even if a government doesn't rule it. But the fact is that, you know, we see the delays of, of um, the deprecation of cookies, uh, which would probably help satisfy privacy concerns, but it would also probably raise antitrust issues or accelerate them. And yeah. they are literally stuck between that rock and a hard place. Yeah, and uh, you know, I don't see the direction of government travel changing anytime soon. And it's certainly, you know, traveling in the same same direction across the EU and the US and the UK. Um, so it points to, yeah, something needing to be done eventually in that space of. Um, you know, are you going to continue to be able to uh, claim that the size of the market is is bigger than just digital and therefore you don't have as much power as um, certain views of market share would seem to point to? Yep. He um, he also talked to another issue that will could really could relate to or lead to uh, more regulation. Um, with respect to the, the power of the walled gardens uh, in general. And apologies, these quotes I'm going to read from, from the, the, the uh, investor day are a little bit long, but I think pretty important and pretty interesting ways to think about it. So he says, um, one analogy I've used is this. There are companies who are saying, why don't I create the biggest safe in the world and we can put all the data in there, especially in the sense of identity, which centralizes the way that data gets used. We could put it in the central database 
eye scanners and thick walls and we'll talk about all the things we do for security and we'll put it all in these two amazing safes or maybe three or five. I think that poses too big uh, a, a too big to fail risk that is as great, very different, but as great as the 2008 global financial crisis, where we say we've created something that's too big to fail except for the entire internet is based on it, including the way the entire internet is monetized. Irrespective of how long it takes us to get there, when the risk reward gets weighed out, we'll end at a place where uh, consumers can clearly understand the risks they're taking. Um, they'll have a relationship directly with individual companies. They choose where they decide to trust people and then they have uh, control over their settings, they can undo it. Only with this kind of offsetting do I believe that we can comply with things like GDPR and all the rules that are basically, you know, like the right to be forgotten, control and consent. Okay, so what are you saying in these two different uh, um, parts was, you know, basically he's arguing that if, if too much data lives in one place, um, it's a fair point. If, if everyone, if every business can eventually get hacked, um, then it probably is better to have greater distribution of where and how data is um, stored and made available. So I thought that was kind of an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember who uh, was talking about basically just the same thing recently, but I have to imagine a world where, um, you know, whether it's through some elements of uh, blockchain or just a, a service where, you know, it's really dependent on each individual person, the, the data never leaves the person's device. And there's instead just like a, a broker where information can come from advertisers or from uh, exchanges to a person, but not the other way around. Um, final uh, topic uh, from, from that event uh, relates to connected TV, which has been, again, another theme that uh, the Trade Desk has certainly been a leading um, voice and player on. All right, so he says, CTV is enabling the open internet to get the very first dollar. That's never been the case before. When I stood here three years ago, programmatic and the open internet was pretty much getting the leftover. Now more and more, the first dollar is going to connected television, and that's an opportunity for everyone, especially those of us that are objective and don't own any content. The first dollar? Uh, that's a hard disagree. I mean, connected TV is, it, well, clearly there's a lot of opportunity for growth. It's clearly important. Um, at the end of the day, the vast majority of advertisers who use televisions, we've defined it, need reach and frequency, and they need to balance it well, and they're still going to start their plans with traditional TV, at least for a little while. Not long, but a little while. No? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. I'm curious to know which clients he's talking to <laughs> that are starting with uh i don't know any of the, them that start with like the pluto or tubi or whatever yeah. as, a, as the first dollar the problem and the risk and the reason why it doesn't work that way it's the same reason why advertisers didn't start their campaigns with putting money down on cable before they put broadcast down and the reason was even though cable historically was cheaper than uh, cable was or than broadcast networks was because you get unintended duplication because you can buy a broadcast network and then try to figure out who you're missing from a targeting perspective, a reach and frequency perspective, even if it's flawed. And you can attempt to avoid the unintended duplication. But if you do it the other way around, you can't avoid the unintended duplication that you get with the broadest reaching platforms. But over time, I mean, if, if broadcast networks lose sports, for example, over time, their reach advantage would would start to fall apart in much more meaningful ways. And maybe that does become true, but it, it doesn't seem true right now. 
The other, uh, maybe the final point around this that uh, we'll quibble with, they, they cited uh, TV is roughly $250 billion, depending on whose numbers you use, too, as Craig said that. Uh, CTV is ballpark $16 billion. The correct numbers are $172 billion for TV and $21 billion for connected TV+. Plus. There you go. There you, you go. heard it here first. So, I There's one other thing I, well, a few other things I thought were interesting from it. Um, this idea of... Um, pointing out how great it was to be able to organize by goal, basically awareness, consideration, and then purchase. Like you would start your campaign. I think of that as a lot of how, you know, certainly some advertisers think about it. Um, I just point to our previous conversations around uh, whether say, you know, direct response and brand still, if that's still the right way to think about things or if it's so, um, you know, across purposes where you can accomplish things with a campaign across multiple of those goals where is that really the right starting point right well um having good goals like that is is, is a beautiful concept um speaking of beauty <laughs> how's that nice. for a segue nice you did some digging into uh the beauty business it did so um you know, we've been speaking to uh, a, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people about the uh, e-commerce report and, um, you know, clients across Group M as well as uh, industry partners. Um, so we did some chatting about apparel the other week. Um, this week was a, a bit of a deeper dive into beauty and skincare. Um, and, you know, I'd say on the whole, those companies are uh, more e-commerce oriented than um, certainly a, a UK or US average. Um, then, yeah, so further ahead in that in that sense. I, it is interesting that um, I mean, among you know, where you have a relatively standardizable product, and where I guess the value to shipping cost ratios are you know in the right proportion. I could see how it makes sense to um, uh, to make it a, a very uh, you know more digitally centric kind of uh, category, but it is still re remarkable how um, how high some companies are in terms of the percentage of uh, revenues they generate. I mean, in some is 30, 40 percent, right, of activity. Uh, not seen forty, but certainly uh, from twenty. I mean, L'Oreal is definitely up there at the the top of the pack, um, and also Shiseido. Um, it does differ by market as well. So um, take Shiseido as an example, like Japan, similar to our uh, global or similar to the report, only 10% e-commerce um, versus China, it's about half. So well, I guess something of like the Kylie Jenner um, pro brand, and I'm not, as, as we all know that, you know, the, the, there's a reason this is not a video based uh, podcast. Uh, you, you would not see very good use of any makeup on my part. Um, so I, what do I know about the category? But, um, Kylie Jenner's direct consumer business that sold to Cody, uh, that was, would have been mostly digitalized him. No. Yeah. Yeah. And Cody is, let's see, uh, it's been you know, obviously increasing over time since about like the end of 2019. I think a lot of, uh, these companies also saw bumps, um, both holiday bumps and then also like COVID, <laughs> COVID bumps. Um, and then our most, like some of them are, are evening out and some of them are continuing to, to grow, I think. Um, but Cody, the last reported number is probably about mid 
mid-teens in terms right. of e-commerce penetration. Right, and I get, but I guess whatever the uh, the, the the Kylie Jenner brands uh, probably a big big chunk of that. Um, speaking of Kylie Jenner, you're just all about the segues today. I am, I am, and by the way, and I'm also so detached from pop culture. Uh, Kylie Jenner and Kim Kardashian are siblings, right? Yes. Um, but they have different last names because the, do they have the same? Don't ask body? me. Don't um, our our showrunner I think watches some show about right. that family. But I don't. Uh, yeah, but I know the Jenner and Kardashian relationship and all that stuff. I just can't keep everything straight in my head. So, anywho, Kim Kardashian was in the news um, for an SEC fine uh, that she took, admitted no wrongdoing because that's what happens. Uh, <laughs> For crypto-related endorsement, and um, uh, yeah, well, this was quite. I mean, that, that's actually kind of a big deal, no? Yeah, I um, did see that news come out. Basically, had not uh, reported that she was being paid to promote um, crypto, and is now banned from any further promotions of those sorts as well correct yeah yeah i mean that that's my understanding and and it, it is it, it's telling you know as a former analyst you know that you don't ever 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 want to get an sec uh query or in, certainly something where there's actually a result like like that and so it certainly causes analysts to stay on the side of uh conservatism, if you will, in terms of uh, anything that might touch up upon what a regulator cares about. Um, but oh, boy, I mean, if only, you say, imagine, oh, go ahead. if only we could imagine what, I, I don't know, you had a characterization of what what what, what that SEC investigation that Kim Kardashian must have uh, experienced. Was yeah, like. I imagine it was fairly invasive. I was trying to plot it on a scale against like more or less invasive than having your colonoscopy filmed a la Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney, which I enjoyed from a couple weeks ago. Not you the not the filming it? part, but the <laughs> you enjoyed it. That's odd. Oh dear. Um, um, it was funny. It was funny. Friend of the pod, Ryan Reynolds. He's, he's a friend of the pod, as we all know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but and where where did they distribute that? Uh, I saw it on LinkedIn first. Does that tell you? <laughs> it was a professional colonoscopy. Yeah, but yeah, invasive at any rate. Not not good. Not good. So, in a world of uh, Elon Musk controlling Twitter, because we can't not talk about Elon, friend of the pod. <laughs> um, you, you know, we don't always. Okay, so the news as of time of recording, it's Thursday to be clear, um, and anything is still possible. Um, as of this minute, it appears that Musk will end up taking control of Twitter, um, anything could still happen. But uh, I, I wonder if a colonoscopy related content would be elevated, demoted, um, like. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or that, yeah, uh, that a, uh, a deposition is also invasive enough to want to avoid it was the uh, some of the speculation around why the deal is now back on. Yeah, actually, if, if they live tweeted the, uh, the the deposition, I think if it does still <laughs> that part of, does still happen, I think that would get good uh, good um, good attendance. Nothing yeah, else. Um, but it is a serious issue in that you know a lot of the concerns that advertisers had uh, certainly when this was first announced and seemed like it was going to happen are, are back now, and and we have to be you know I, I guess if there's any difference that we have now, as we talked about the last time we talked about this, what last week. Um, the idea that 
would Axel Springer end up running the business? Uh, would another third party end up running the actual like the advertising side? I mean, then it could be interesting if they actually can influence the product, mindful of advertiser needs from a brand safety perspective, mindful of social needs uh, in terms of not doing things that destroy democracies around the world or individuals. I don't know if we should be optimistic though on that front yet. Uh, I don't know. I mean, if you're a brand, are you more worried about the number of bots on Twitter or the number of, uh, you know, brand safety violations and issues? I mean, they can both be the problem, right? The, now, the bot seems like less of an issue as we learned from uh, their whistleblower who basically was very complimentary essentially around the advertising product because he said the company is incented to not defraud advertisers. Uh, they only have to pay for what the company genuinely believes to be real humans. So that's that's a positive thing. But um, I do think that, yeah, the brand safety issue, if, if any retrenchment uh, on that front is, is not a good thing because it's not just that it's bad for society, but from a marketer perspective that brands will uh, put themselves in a position where they could be rightly associated with harms that come from the platform. Yeah, and that's already and still a problem today. So the the opportunity for that to get worse is um, not not good. Yeah, well, um, certainly uh, online safety is one of the topics uh, that's big for every uh, trade group, every marketer, um, countries around the world. And it's one of the issues we uh, hit on when we talked to Phil Smith uh, from ISBA, uh, the UK's biggest uh, trade group for marketers. Yep, let's, uh, let's have a listen to that now. Joining us on uh, This Week Next Week is Phil Smith from Isba. Phil, how are you? Very well indeed. Brian, Kate, really good to be on. Why don't you um, just give us a quick overview of what Isba is for those who uh, don't know that particular acronym um, and then what you, what you do for them, what a day looks like. <laughs> for sure. Um, we are the Incorporated Society of British Advertisers. So uh, in the UK, we're the equivalent of the uh, ANA in the US. We represent the voice of the advertisers. Uh, and uh, we, you know, we're the trade body that's here to do the representation, the advocacy, uh, but also to bring together a really powerful network of, uh, of marketeers and to help them navigate the shoals of conflicts of interest and all of the kinds of things that make uh, the current environment so complex. Uh, you know, our real purpose is to make the uh, media environment more trustworthy for regulators and for lawmakers and for the uh, public at large. Well, um, the UK is, I mean, like the United States is always in the news, but the UK has been in the news for a lot of different reasons and different ways that are um, to the, to a global audience uh, than, than in unusual ways the last few weeks. Um, what's the mood of British advertisers right now? <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, it's a very good question. I don't think we'd say we've been in the news necessarily for all the right reasons, uh, and I think there's a great deal of lack of clarity over what the, uh, the future holds. You know, clearly we've got all of the same kinds of pressures that uh, exist globally. Uh, you know, we have a real cost of living crisis here, and UK com consumer confidence is really really hitting the floor. Uh, everything I'm seeing suggests that um, when it comes to concern over inflation concern over rising prices you know we're right up at the, the, the head of the pack uh and whilst through the summer uh i think the, the party continued 
when it came to consumer spending, uh, all the conversations I'm having now suggest that the um, you know that the, the train is hitting the tracks and people are having to uh, cut back. Uh, they're um, they're finding it difficult to get price increases through, uh, and that uh, you know that we're facing into a really a really tough environment. I think on, on top of that, of course, we've got huge political uncertainty. Uh, you know, we have a government that has. That's where it's going. I mean, yeah. it's chaos in a, in a more befitting of uh, an emerging market than <laughs> the UK. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. There's quite a lot of commentary about the way which the uh, economy has been tanked by uh, some of our, uh, our government's most recent actions. Uh, look, I mean, it, it's it's very clear that there's a lack of uh, of a grip on policy from the government. Uh, which means that it's very difficult to give certainty to advertisers. Uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, a, a big direction of uh, you know, policy reversal in a number of areas, uh, and it's also unclear about whether or not the government will be able to, to pursue the policies it wishes to pursue. You know, as we've seen even this week when it comes to uh, the U-turn on tax, but many of the um, policies of the previous administration, you know, around HFSS foods, disposal of Channel Four, the broadcaster. Um, uh, it, the list goes on. You know, those those things are being um, put on the back burner at the very least, uh, and more generally, there's a swing towards uh, small government. How how far out is this um, sense of pessimism? I guess, like if 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 the winter was maybe uh, not as bad, or people sort of weather it and tighten belts through mm -hmm. the the winter and the worst of the. Um, gas price increases, is there a sense that, uh, you know, if inflation was also coming down, things would pick back up in the new year? Or is it more aligned to, I mean, the Bank of England was saying, well, into next year, it was going to yeah. continue to look pretty, pretty gray. I think people are assuming that 2023 is going to be tough all around, you know, if not, if not longer than that. Uh, the real risk people are looking at is, uh, is persistent inflation. Uh, and and of course, it's not just in in gas prices. We're seeing it in uh, in borrowing, in you know, in, in uh, mortgage rates, uh, and uh, and and the cost of cost of basics like food is going through going through the roof as well for people. So you know, been looking at double digit inflation for for recent months. Um, I've, you know, I'll be the last one to forecast where where it will be going, but I think everybody assumes it's going to be it's going to be high, and we're going to be faced with a very very value conscious consumer well and, and on that what do you think what are you hearing from your members in terms of how they're reacting i mean certainly a question we've been we were receiving well before uh all of the the news of the last few weeks there um and for whether for the uk for the us or any country around the world how how are should advertisers react to recession it, it's more of a theoretical uh, thing in the <laughs> us because things are still actually not bad here the uk yeah. it's not um and so what what are you hearing in terms of how they're changing what they're doing yeah well it's it's the, you know, it's the old adage isn't it everybody has a strategy until they're punched in the face um so you know all the way through the recent months we've heard uh, advertisers talking about their desire to continue to support their brands and uh, and weather the storm but i think at the same time uh, there's been a degree of pragmatism and the knowledge that they're going to have to be very flexible and adapt in the same way that they did when uh, when covid bit uh, i think we're now seeing that reality start to to bite um, and you know, not all conversations are the same. Some markets are, uh, some industries are in, in different positions from others. But certainly, if I talk to some of the you know, the old mainstays of the market, like the, the packaged goods folks and the retailers, you know, they're seeing big shifts in consumer behaviour to value brands and to uh, and to private label. Uh, they're 
um, there's a lot of pressure not to be passing on price increases, uh, and you know, and as a result, uh, I you know I can think of several conversations where people are talking about either uh, reducing spending in half, uh, freezing it at its current level, uh, in some cases having a complete moratorium. Right. So in that, I love this analogy of um, navigating the shoals. Mm -hmm. Are there uh, safe harbors, some friendly beaches or coves where people are <laughs> able, to, where you know your your constituents are feeling like there's um, the ability to invest or plan for the future still in in certain areas? Uh, I, I think I think the honest answer is I'm I'm not seeing them at the moment. Uh, I don't <laughs> I don't think I've I've heard people give me uh, you know a, a a quick answer. I think that many of the areas where they've they've spent historically um, are becoming more difficult for them. Clearly, um, you know, for a lot of um, businesses that are very reliant on uh, you know, direct consumer purchasing, uh, attribution has become much more, more difficult. Cost of acquisition um, has, uh, has gone up. Um, the, uh, the issues that we are facing into when it comes to Broadcast, which is you know, still the mainstay of um, uh, of advertising for most of the brands that I, I talk to, uh, relate to a continued decline in uh, in audiences. So, you know, weekly reach is going down uh, continually, particularly for younger audiences, and that has meant that it, that's been a major driver of inflation. But also, it's had a big impact on the, the effectiveness of campaigns, and has meant that budgets have needed to be allocated in multiple directions, which is never. A great recipe for uh, for efficiency. So I think I, I don't see people anybody's coming to me in any sector with a you know with a magic bullet solution for how they're going to to, to work their way uh, way through this. Um, what I think they are looking for is um, uh, you know, is opportunities where they can retain the maximum amount of flexibility. Uh, and we know that um, you know, digital platforms benefited from that last time around during during COVID. We saw some more some more um, flexibility from our, our broadcasters as well in terms of reduced lead times for commitment um, mm -hmm. and I think we'll you know we'll see more of that that kind of behavior I think as uh, as the months progress I do want to come to uh, some of the investments that you're making at least uh, project origin mm -hmm. of course uh, maybe most notably here among them but um, uh, on some of the policy issues that are out there that you touched on uh, and, and recognizing there's still a lot of uncertainty but for uh, for non-British users or listeners who are not uh, uh, not maybe as familiar, maybe we should just touch quickly on them and and get your thoughts about how they you think they'll evolve. Your preference mm -hmm. about how they should evolve. So we have the HFSS ban, which yeah. is like that salty sugar, sugary foods, uh, yeah. or the watershed for when ads can air. The sale of Channel Four, which ties to a theme that we've been hitting on around pan-European consolidation, or whether mm -hmm. the adjacent to that issue and um and frankly gdpr which i guess has been thrown up uh as well yeah. thoughts yeah yeah no really, really good question i think the first thing to say is um you know n nobody really thinks that the policies that are being pursued currently will necessarily stick because we have an election that's around the corner anyway um people find it hard to predict that the conservatives will come back into government and if they do it's not necessarily likely that they will be pursuing the same policies or have the same the same mandate so it feels very much as though we're in a um in an interregnum where the pursuit of uh, of growth 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 as our prime minister put it has meant that everything else is being taken off the table and some bits may come back on some some may not so if you take those 
take that list. Um, HFSS foods, uh, we're surprised by the extent of the um, uh, review of the anti-obesity strategy that's being envisaged. You know, we've always said and, and thought that the uh, online uh, ad ban and the 9pm watershed were not well based in evidence. In fact, the evidence base was really very flawed. Uh, and uh, on top of that, we didn't think it would be effective, even on the basis of the government's own assessment. You know, it wouldn't do what we all want to do, which is reduce childhood uh, obesity. So we're, we're glad to see that come off the table. But some of the uh, other measures that have been uh, taken around promotion, buy one, get one free deals, even a talk of reversing the sugar tax, uh, you know, a meeting, uh, a reaction from the industry, which is one of amusement, frankly, because a lot of people uh, and a number of retailers in particular, you know, are halfway through the implementation of some of those measures. So um, so some, some of it seems to be pragmatism and a lot of it seems to be ideology and some, uh, a lot of our members are saying it's going too far uh, and it's certainly not going to be popular. What we have seen is the cost of living crisis means that the, um, the, the uh, Labour Party has come out and said it would also scrap the ban on buy one get one free uh, deals, don't know where they stand on, uh, on, the, on the ad uh, position. But I think it does mean that uh, when these come back on the table, it won't be you know for another eighteen months, two years. Um, Channel Four again. I think you know the new culture secretary Michelle Donnellan has said she's going to review the business case. She said she's going to be evidence based and will will listen. Uh, we'd obviously welcome that. Uh, and the business case we think was never made for privatising uh, Channel Four. Um, we suspect that in the um, media bill, which may or may not come. Uh, come forward in the next uh, in the next month. Channel Four will get uh, a, re a reprieve, but uh, you know, go back to the earlier point about the decline in audiences. Uh, you know, I'm sure that um, at some point the issue is going to come back in front of uh, in front of government. Uh, as you've mentioned, there is that trend towards consolidation in in the broadcast industry uh, across Europe, um, and uh, you know, I think we you know we're we're be prepared for the time at which that uh, which that happens. You know, from Isbar's perspective. The concerns for advertisers, not just about the fact that the Channel 4 audience that's delivered because of their remit, their unique public service broadcast remit, is, is well skewed to, uh, to a younger and more diverse audience. It, it's also the fact that the, uh, the risk of consolidation uh, could create um, you know, super dominant power within broadcast, which given current trading mechanisms uh, could be very, very uh, disadvantageous. So just to give you an example, if, if ITV were to acquire Channel 4, it would give them a 70% share of, uh, of the TV broadcast measure, uh, manage, uh, market. And, uh, you know, and that's, uh, that's a market which we view as uh, unique and non-substitutable in the way that our, our, our advertisers use it. Uh, and that would, be a, that would be a real concern. It would need some very, very, very serious remedies thought about to uh, allow that to go through. So, well, yeah, so that's, yeah, exactly that's, what we saw in, in France, right, with the, yeah, exactly, you know, the exactly. MCs yeah. and RTL deal not going through. So, yeah, a lot, you know, the, the same evidence came back from the advertisers, unique, non-substitutable. Uh, and uh, again, it would have been a 70 percent share of market and was was rejected by the competition authority on those on, on those grounds. So so I think that, you know, that's one that we're very much uh, alert to. Um, online safety bill uh, is one that people are saying will go ahead, but that's had uh, its twists and turns. Uh, you know, from its original white paper, we would suggest it became a bit of a political football and uh, you know grew grew quite a lot of, of legs. Uh, we think it's quite helpful that government is now looking at um, pairing that back, uh, and in particular reviewing the um, uh, the inclusion of so-called legal but harmful content. Uh, but 
whether they go further than that in trying to strip it back is something we'll keep a we'll keep a really close uh, close eye on, you know, particularly in the uh, in in the light of uh, the amount of public um, scrutiny there is of uh, the platforms, you know, the uh, the inquest into the death of um, uh, Molly Russell who committed suicide back in 2017, which was a big issue then, has uh, has occupied even more uh, of the news space um, here, uh, and you know the. Uh, the the, the thing that's really come to the fore is the, the official condemnation that goes with that uh, and uh, you know it's more publication of the uh, of the detail of, uh, of what would have taken place in that in that you know, sad tragedy so those those are a few things I think you mentioned another one didn't you GDPR yeah it's uh, that, that's one that we'll have to watch with interest the government contends that uh, we would be able to maintain data adequacy that remains to be seen um, of course, it's not just GDPR, but it's also uh, the so-called PECA, which is the um, regulation that involves uh, so many repeated calls for uh, user consent, and that's something they're seeking to change. If they can pull that off, it might actually end up being uh, being helpful for consumers. Uh, a lot of what we've seen in their data, uh, their data bill looks really quite constructive and and helpful. But watch this space, I think. Amazing. It's a long was, list of things. Yeah. <laughs> it's enough to keep us busy, that's for sure. Do you want to hit on Project Origin then? Um, yeah, a, 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 a friend of the pod, Tom George, is involved. Yeah, we're, we're, we're delighted. I mean, Tom joined at the beginning of, uh, of September. Um, he was a really natural choice for, for the role. And, and he was so keen to do it. You know, he is firmly convinced, as we all are, that this is something that the market really, really needs. Um, you know, the advertisers have, have globally have really been driving this and it's great to see the progress that's being made, uh, not just in the UK, but in the US as well. And it's all bound together by the, uh, the WFA's global framework and the, um, and the work that's being done uh, across the piece to create common global components to bring in uh, privacy safe first party data. And well, let's explain what it is for everyone. Not, yeah, not okay. so what is Project Origin? Project Origin um, is um, a global initiative to uh, uh, allow us to have accountable uh, cross-media audience measurement uh, in a way that uh, provides a rich source of data, not just for um, strategic planning, but operational planning as well, and evaluation of media. Uh, you know, we think in a world where media experience is fragmenting so much the audiences are becoming so uh, so fragmented and also where the creative experience is changing so much you know it isn't all about a 30 second tv slot there are so many different ways in which you can consume media uh, and and even within video uh, you know we know that a a, a youtube pre-roll is very much uh, a different thing from uh, from a traditional linear tv ad uh, and providing data uh, that allows people to place a better evaluation on their spending, we think is is, is vital. So uh, Origin as a cross-media audience measurement solution intends to bring in data that isn't just about uh, reach and frequency, but also will bring in data around uh, duration, uh, viewability, screen size, um, sound on, sound off, all of those things that are indicators of quality. We'll do so in, in an audited way. Uh, and that will also incorporate uh, industry standards. And the, and the basic architecture is to build on the best of both uh, conventional audience measurements through panel, uh, but also to ingest um, at scale first party data 
but to do that in a way which is um, privacy safe. So we're using a virtual ID methodology uh, that uh, allows us through multi-party computation to create uh, reach and frequency um, uh, models uh, that um, we've demonstrated uh, can preserve the, uh, the results that you would see from traditional um, uh, panels uh, like Barb, which we would hope to uh, ingest into the system, uh, but also bring in the, uh, the granularity required to, uh, to get to campaign level measurement uh, as delivered through uh, digital display and video. Quite a big undertaking uh, globally, given the no one can agree on anything. It seems. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's huge. I mean, clearly, it's technically and methodologically uh, challenging, but we have uh, some of the some of the best resources in the world. We think working on this um, and working on it in a collaborative way, um, and we've always thought that many of the challenges or the biggest challenges lie around um, the politics and the money. Um, but we do think that the traditional way of approaching audience measurement, which has served us really well in the past um, uh, around a supply side driven uh, evaluation of individual media, uh, you know, isn't adequate for advertisers needs um, for the, you know, for the current century. And that's not to say that what we're doing is intended to um, compete with the existing joint industry currencies you know we're there very much as a complement um, and we would work with the grain of uh, those joint industry currency um, uh, reporting tools um, but we do think that there needs to be a much better connected view that allows advertisers uh, to be able to plan and execute their campaigns in a way which is not just more efficient but also better for for consumers um, you know one of the issues that we know from the work we've done on trust and favorability towards advertising is that people feel bombarded by advertising. Uh, there is very, very poor control currently of, uh, of frequency across the piece. So what we're really trying to do is create a much better experience uh, and a much better environment for, for brands for advertising. Yeah, and one of the reasons why I think it's important uh, for listeners here who are not in the UK to pay attention to what we're, we're hearing from, uh, from this is because you do collaborate and sometimes lead uh, a, a lot of initiatives that do end up um, uh, being embraced by the WFA, World Federation of Advertisers, or the ANA here in the U.S., uh, or and, and I'm sure vice versa to some degree, but 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 there are definitely a number of very prominent ones where we've seen a project launched in the U.K. and it has played out globally. So the transparency thing, uh, a transparent initiative mm. that you you had a few years ago. Uh, maybe we could just talk about that as sort of a maybe a final point because we know the ANA is um, perceiving something not dissimilar. Can you talk a bit about that and what the impact? Yeah, was? With, with, yeah, no, with, with with pleasure. Look, I mean, I think you know we, we'd hope that the UK can be a strong contributor, but I think collaboration is definitely the name name of the game. You know, we know we're dealing with you know large global businesses, not just amongst our members, but in the in the the tech and the platform community as well, and and. They are understandably trying to find single solutions uh, across the piece. So, so for us, we we've always said we, we'll put our hand up and, and help create those things. But uh, we'll only succeed if uh, if they're if they're landed uh, if they're landed globally. So, it's in our interest to collaborate. Um, going more specifically to the um, we the imaginatively named named programmatic supply chain study, uh, which we uh, reported on two years ago with uh, PwC. That study, that time round, took us uh, a year to uh, to land. We worked with 15 advertisers, 12 uh, publishers, and sought to create 
uh, a waterfall of cost between the advertiser pound and the uh, the money that, that got to the publishers. I think, as you can remember, the, the you know the, the big findings were uh, first of all how difficult it was to get hold of the data. It took us the, took us a year rather than the plan three months. Secondly, uh, how the data arrived in in very inconsistent ways, and it meant that the match rate, uh, as we looked through uh, the hundreds of millions of impressions that we had, uh, only amounted to some twelve percent. Um, we uh, we then found, of course, that of the one pound spent by the advertiser, fifty one pence was getting to the publisher. Uh, and in the in the middle, in that 49 pence, there was 15p in the pound, so 15% of the advertiser's pound that was just going down a, a black hole that we called the, uh, the unknown delta. What's the term, the unknown delta? Unknown delta, yes. Imagine that's it. If we form another band in the future, I think that's what it's called. It's called <laughs> uh, the unknown deltas. Uh, excellent. That's can a I good play, band name. Yeah, can I play rhythm guitar in that one? Because that would, <laughs> I, I think I can do that. I can do that riff. Um, and we we've done a lot of work with the industry here in the uk but with global players uh, in the in the room to um make that industry more uh, accountable and auditable um so we've we've agreed on standardized uh, uh, legal permissioning to allow consenting parties to be able to see data through the the chain um we've also standardized the uh, data requests uh, to allow the uh, matching to take place uh, and we believe that the industry has made quite a bit of progress uh, in the intervening two years. So we're just in the process now of doing a slightly more uh, restricted study, but which we'll still give the headlines on, uh, where we're again looking at the, uh, the pound going through to the publisher with a um, number of advertisers, subscribers uh, and, and publishers. And we'll be reporting on that before the end of the year. And, I hope, and I'm sure we'll see that there's still room for improvement, but we expect there to be a fairly significant improvement from, from where we were a couple of years ago. Ago, uh, you know, Again, that'll be a result of collaboration. And we, of course, we'll wait to see um, the, the results coming out of the ANA study, which has got many of the same, same components uh, as ours, but um, uh, I think has, has a, a very ambitious set of aims uh, to go right the way through to the consumer. Uh, and uh, and uh, and is employing uh, multiple methodologies to get there as well. So really looking forward to seeing that. Yep, as are we. Um, well, Phil, thanks so much for joining us uh, this week. Uh, it's been great to get a round of a tour of uh, what's going on in the UK and frankly, what that means for the rest of the world. Uh, I think a lot falls from that. Uh, so thanks so much for your time here. Well, it's been yeah, a huge, thanks for joining. It's been a huge pleasure. We've got a, we've got a lot to do, but it, uh, it's uh, it's a great time to be doing it. Uh, really great conversation with Phil. Um, so glad to to hear everything that is uh, happening at ISBA and, and his perspective on the wider industry uh, in the UK. I think, you know, one of the things that he touched on briefly and that I just want to um, circle back to now is this, the um, conversation around Molly Russell and the uh, news from the, the corner there, you know, Listeners can um, look at this case. Uh, it was covered even just this week uh, by the New York Times and, and by outlets in the UK around uh, the coroner pointing to a contributing cause of uh, Miss Russell's suicide as being the the social media content that she was um, that she was watching and, and saving. Um, and I think you know <clears throat> sometimes there's a a danger for for me or people in a role where you're analyzing these uh, companies and, and platforms as data points, where you can you know sometimes 
uh, not forget, but it becomes easy to kind of uh, gloss over the fact that there are humans involved in all of these cases. I mean, I think the important thing for for me was really to um, point out and and sit with the sort of <clears throat> real world harm that can stem from some of these platforms and tools that we track and, and talk about, and especially as a, a parent, um, you know, highlighting how much work we should all be doing to to prompt change and responsible product development at these companies. Um, and you know, our role within the industry is is key, but again, we probably as large advertisers and agencies only make up what maybe 20% of Meta's revenue. And so I think figuring out how we can um, influence from that position and, and get all advertisers, uh, small and large, to be advocating for safety and child welfare is, is really important. Yeah, and I think that at bare minimum, uh, certainly marketers have to be mindful of, of these things. Uh, I mean, you go back to issues around genocide, uh, and, uh, you know, where, you know, I thought it was, it was always kind of unfortunate. I think most of, um, it, there wasn't enough attention paid to, to it when even when the UN admonished uh, uh, Meta for its uh, contributing role. Um, and uh, I, I think that the least that certainly marketers need to do in, in, in agencies as well, just need to be always aware of is just uh, that these are real things. Like there are reasons why you engage with these platforms uh, to satisfy certain goals, uh, but you know can't forget uh, the costs that follow, and and it should at least inform choices or inform ways of engaging, inform um, it, just ongoing conversations that everyone has with these platforms uh, in general. And and it goes back to um, the point we're making in all seriousness about Twitter uh, under an Elon Musk uh, um, era. Uh, if that mm -hmm. is what happens, that um, there are real-world consequences to the choices that they make. Marketers need to be vocal in expressing uh, what they believe to be true. Now, they can Twitter can choose to disregard it, and and marketers then can choose to engage, disengage as they see appropriate. Um, but they they shouldn't forget that there are consequences, and and at least account for that in their uh, decision making. Yep. Well said. Indeed. Well, we'll have more guests, uh, I think, in uh, some of the weeks ahead as we uh, work on the ongoing uh, countdown to this year, next year, December 2022 edition. Yep. And some new, uh, well, at least newly collected and analyzed um, data out of the OECD around uh, venture capital funding and new business starts, which are key to our investigation of this year, next year as well. Yep. Until next time, this has been Brian Weezer and Kate Scott-Dawkins. See you next week. This Week Next Week is hosted by me, Kate Scott-Dawkins, and Brian Weezer. Our producer is Jared Bayman. Our showrunner is Sam Weston. The views and opinions expressed here are our own and are not intended to represent those of Group M or its clients. If you have questions, comments, or requests for future segments, let us know at business.intelligence at groupm.com. Mm -hmm.